0: Welcome to Intimacy Choreography in Conversation,
1: where Anne and Carly talk candidly about the growing world of intimacy choreography and shifting performing art spaces towards a culture of consent. Hello, 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 Carly! Hi! <laughs> it is so great to be in the same ether with you yet again. Absolutely. So happy to be back recording. Ah, oh, So much has happened. So much. <laughs> and uh, we are so glad to begin our interviews of artists all around the nation and internationally, actually with our first guest, Carly, take it
0: away. Um, So today we have as our amazing guest, uh, the wonderful Diana Wyon. And she is a director, writer, choreographer, and dramaturg of contemporary and original works for theater, opera, film, digital, and site-specific performance. And her work includes advocacy in the realms of environmental and disability justice. Um, So she is really amazing and we're so excited to have her talking with us today welcome
2: diana thank you i am so honored to be here with the two of you it means so much
1: yeah you know this is all your fault
0: (laughs) (laughs) this whole podcast is essentially your fault
2: (laughs) i will take all of the blame i will happily take all of the blame for this this podcast is incredible
1: For those of you who don't know, uh, Carly and I met formally, I guess, um, and were invited to uh, speak about intimacy in a time of COVID through Diana's company and through, um, she's going to tell you all about it, Um, but that's how we met. And while we were answering some questions that we kind of wanted to dual interview each other these questions started coming in from the people watching uh the dual interview, and so all of those questions we compiled there was no way we would be able to get to all those questions. I think there were over a hundred questions, Carly, oh my gosh, yeah it was it was a lot, yeah. Um,
0: but yeah, Diana, do you want to talk about the uh, the origin story at all <laughs> and how yeah. you helped birth this and Definitely. Bring this together?
2: Definitely, because it's actually, I think, even how you and I originally met Arlie. It totally um, is. Yeah, so I uh, was looking for a way to kind of really fully transition into directing, um, and I found this opportunity called Director's Lab West. It is um, an eight-day intensive based in around Pasadena area and the Los Angeles area for emerging and mid-career theater directors and choreographers. And so I did the program in 2012 and it definitely marked a kind of shift in my practice where I doubled down on, on directing and choreography. And, um, I met incredible people and was just immersed and I fell in love with the program. And then they said, do you want to help us, you know, organize and, and coordinate the program for future years? So I became a part of the steering committee. And I've been in part of the steering committee since I think it was 2014. And then when COVID hit, we were about to have our, our 21st lab, 21st annual lab. Wow. And, um, and that wasn't going to happen because, you know, getting uh, 50 emerging and mid-career directors in a room just was no longer legal. Um right. so it was like, how do we pivot? Because clearly there's a need for our community to still come together. And we had this idea of instead of eight days in this tight-knit group, we would instead partner with HowlRound and bring eight conversations over the course of the original eight days that we were supposed to gather in person. And because we we're like casting such a a large net, it was like, what do we really want to talk about? Because clearly the rug has been pulled out from all of us. And So we wanted to talk about using intimacy direction to create a culture of consent post-COVID. It's kind of amazing because they're still in COVID, but we were exploring that at the time. And Carly, I mean, you immediately popped to mind because you had given great workshops in the past. And um, I think when we talked, it was like, well, who do you want to be in dialogue with? Because we weren't interested in just talking heads. We wanted like a real conversation ethos to the event. Um, because nobody had all the answers and we didn't want to put anybody on the spot for like, well, how do you do this? So it was great because you immediately were like, Well, I really want to talk to Ann James. And I was like, who is this person? And then like, you know, a Google deep dive later, I was like, We must talk to Ann James. She's fantastic. <laughs> Let's do it. And you two knocked it out of the park. That that conversation's still available on HowlRound for the folks who want to access it. But yeah, that was the that was where this all began. And like you said, the audience, um, which was international, had so many questions for you both. And I was so grateful that you didn't just have the 45 minute conversation and move on, but that this has been birthed out of it. I just think it's really remarkable. And I will fully accept all blame <laughs> <laughs> okay oh, we're so grateful for
0: you and uh directors lab west for for bringing us together but yeah i remember talking to you and you were like okay who do you want to talk to and i was like you know who's doing some awesome stuff and is just like a badass that i mm-hmm. want to connect with it's ann james <laughs> and um we, oh, it was, <laughs> and we just like yeah we just like hit it off and i was like wow we have such a great rapport and we were talking after it and we should like we we're like we should
1: answer more of these questions. Should should we do a podcast? Here we are. (laughs) Yes, here we are. I think, you know, even through that last little bit of our, like, what do we do with these questions? We kind of went, well, should we write a book? Should we write like a little pamphlet or a brochure? And then the the idea for the podcast kind of just burst through. And um, Diana, I will forever, ever, be in your debt for solidifying um my zeal for Carly Wexstein. <laughs> Absolute zeal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Pretty fantastic individual there. Definitely. we just have a mutual three way <laughs> zeal right here for each other. Yay! It's
0: the a, a love best. Right. Let's get into it. Yes. So we, you know, we, we connect a little bit before and we're like, what do we, what do we want to talk about? But, uh, I think we're all really passionate about like this idea of leadership is service. Like it, you know, as people Mm -hmm. who identify as directors and intimacy directors and, and folks who, you know, sometimes have a place of leadership or power in the room and talking about how do we move. You know, individually, but also, you know, as an overall culture in the entertainment industry, how do we move towards um, looking at leadership as an act of service to the people that you're working with? And also, how do we move away from like, the, the narrative of like, single leadership, like one singular, charismatic person is who we look to for everything and move towards like communal leadership, which, you know, can be challenging in the
1: traditional role of a director.
2: Yes. Let's all of that. Yes,
1: please. <laughs> it's really important right now because we've got this uh, national, splashy, Scott Rudin kind of, his name is Scott Rudin, right? Yeah, he he's the guy who um is notoriously involved with hundreds of Broadway uh, shows. Oh yeah. And who mm-hmm. is uh, you know being accused of being abusive to his assistants, throwing potatoes, throwing cell phones, thro- slamming slamming um laptops down on the hand of his assistant and the the assistant Had to be rushed to the hospital Oh my god Uh, I mean a tyrant A tyrant Mm. and yet the industry Has kind of held him up The film industry and the theater industry Actually have kind of held him Above the reproach of anyone who would uh, actually complain. There have been hundreds of complaints about the guy, apparently, allegedly. I am not a lawyer. I cannot say for sure. But that's what is happening um, in our theater world right now. And so a very prominent Broadway star, Tony Award-winning Broadway star, Karen Olivo, hashtag I stand Karen Olivo, um just r- yesterday i believe um posted on her instagram that she would not be returning to moulin rouge uh simply because and she was playing the lead in moulin rouge headed toward a tony award no doubt mm-hmm. um she just up and quit her job because she was not uh in the capacity of going back to a toxic workspace which is basically what, you know, professional theater is right now. And the union is having issues with not being accountable. And it's just all a mishigas. So after we come out of this understanding that maybe giving leaders who are abusive a pass, how can we move more toward this communal leadership idea so that we diffuse the power dynamic and spread it amongst many people, which is the way theater started. You know, there was no mm-hmm. such thing as a director right. when theater started. Um, and so how do we get back to that communal leadership uh, modality uh, is, is I think, a wonderful question to for us to kind of talk about and parse out
2: yeah definitely i mean it, it's it's horrendous um what goes on um in some of these uh, environments it's the, like you're completely right there's so much toxicity um and for me personally um the most important thing to me is everyone's safety um yeah. and uh this comes out of I realized, uh, for myself that this impulse was coming from my own, um, relationship to the fact that I'm invisibly disabled. And so I can pass, but I need, uh, certain things to keep myself going and keep myself safe and alive during rehearsal. I have type one diabetes, so I have to manage my blood sugar. And if it goes too low at any time, I am within hours from, uh, fighting the dust. Um, so without knowing, all of a sudden, I started saying to my teams, I have one rule, um, and that is protect yourself and others. Everything else is fair fucking game. And I mean it spiritually, emotionally, and physically. So as long as you are protecting yourself and everyone else in this process, like, let's do it. Let's dive in and let's dive deep and, uh, and not be afraid to really push because we'll, we know then that we're taking care of ourselves and each other. And you've got boundaries, and we have no problem not running past them. Because a a toxic leader like that is just blowing past everybody's boundaries and not keeping everyone safe. And what's so unfortunate is while clearly these folks have risen into places of power, um, I don't think those environments enable anyone to do their best work. And I've found that by creating this simple, one rule for my entire rehearsal process and the performances, like people feel empowered, um, and, and can bring their whole selves to the work. Um, and then I even found myself bringing my full self to the work because I, you know, for the first 10 years of my career, a little bit longer, like I never disclosed to anybody that I was invisibly disabled, um, because of the toxic environment in which I felt like, um, a body like mine, uh, would be looked down on or, um, seen as, you know, not being enough to do the job, which just is not great. So I'm glad we're talking about this because I've definitely been underneath folks like that. I definitely, when I was coming up, acted under a lot of people where I was like, you are an example of what I do not want to do when I hold, uh, the title of director in the room. Um, and I think that there's a real shift happening um, away from that. I think we're hitting, I I hope, I pray we're hitting a climax of this. Like you said, there wasn't always a director. And then we created this role and gave it all the power and kind of had folks bowing down to it. And I think we're like, with all the dismantling and all the conversations going on about patriarchy and colonialism and, and how these things need to break and, um, And the revolution that's happening amongst BIPOC artists, I mean, it's incredible. And I think that this is one of the things that's going to uh, transform because there's a lot of incredible folks in, in the role of director who don't create a toxic environment like the two of you. And I am so grateful for that
1: that's wonderful. You know, I wonder if you could talk uh Diana a little bit about your transition from actor, performer to director. What were some of the things that made you want to uh move into directing? And I'm wondering if the any of your um your non-disclosed undisclosed health Mm -hmm. uh, health challenges were a part of that transition into wanting to be a director.
2: Ooh. Um, so kind of, but I, I, uh, I choreographed my way through high school. So I, um, loved performing and loved, um, choreographing, um, at the time. And so when I applied for college, um, the folks interviewing me were like, well, we could put you in a musical theater program or there's this directing program. And that was really exciting to me. And I actually went the directing route because of all this experience kind of leading through, um, choreographing. And Mm -hmm. so it was something that I was really excited about. And then I got out of school at the age of 20 and, um, found that, you know, the opportunities for a young, uh, woman, uh, to direct a production were non-existent unless I was going to make them at the time. And so That's right. I was trying to figure out like, what's the path here? Do I need to go to grad school? Like, who you know, how do I get the keys to the car? Right. Was yes. the thing. And what happened, um, because your question is kind of like, yes, sort of is I got diagnosed with type one diabetes about a month and a half before I graduated from college. So here I was at the height, like just about to to embark on my professional career. And I find myself in an emergency room being told I'm two weeks away from a coma. I'm actually the sickest I've ever been. And I could die. And uh, yeah, everything's going to change. And wow. so that's when I acquired my disability. Now at the time, I didn't say I did not understand that type one diabetes was a disability. Because to me, that there was so much stigma. And so I actually like shoved it down and was like, this is, this is something I'll just manage. And I won't talk about. And, um, that's something I fight against now. Like there is no, there should not be shame. There should not be this stigma and bias. And just because I acquired a disability, disabled and disability are not bad words. Um, they just describe the circumstances on which I, um, you know, like part of part of who I am, actually, to me now, like I'm very proud to be part of the disabled community because it's such an innovative community. Um, but I digress. The um, so, what happened was I started acting a lot because that I I knew I could get cast in things, and then I just told everyone that I was a, actually a director and a choreographer, and they were like, "You make really smart choices. Do you want to direct this reading?" And slowly but surely, directing opportunities started to arrive. And like I said, in 2012, I kind of defined myself as a director and went to Director's Lab West and, and met my colleagues. And I think I stopped looking for someone else to hand me the keys to the car and realized I was already in the driver's seat. I just had to claim um, claim it for myself and let people recognize it. So, yeah. That's but beautiful. It, And, but it was easier, like you were kind of saying, is it was, it's easier to direct because being on stage sometimes and trying to balance your blood sugar is, is, you know, not the easiest thing in the world. It's totally doable. But I found I love directing through and through from the start. And, um, by being able to create a room in which people can, um, share with me their accessibility needs and they can be met um has has been a real a real joy in my practice
0: that's amazing thank you so much for for sharing this chapter of your of your journey and uh i think you know so much of that leads to why you are a powerful skilled and empathetic director like i feel mm-hmm. like you know empathy and communication and listening that's as like a director's superpower. And like, it's directing is not just about, you know, I come in with a vision, and I tell everybody that and then they execute my vision. I mean, I guess for some people it is, but we we are moving yeah. away from that. I really believe that like listening is part of directing earning trust, you don't just automatically get the trust of your actors, like in your in your crew, like that's trust is something that has to be earned, you have to show folks that You will hold them in a safe space, a brave Mm -hmm. space that you have, you know, not only the story in your vision of the story, but also their well-being and their creative input like at heart. Uh, And and I think that's so connected to how we move away from the centralized leadership, because I do think, you know, uh, like Anne so wisely said, like a director was not always a role in theater and theater was always about community and I think it still should be. And, and I do think there are some, you know, I I think there are some great things about having, you know, one person like steer the ship, but sometimes it's like, you know, you got to give the wheel to to somebody else. And, you know, there are situations where it's helpful to have like one person to make the final call, not in every situation, but like that leadership should come from a place of, being of service to the group, not of being of service to the self. And I feel like this like service to the self is very, um, patriarchal and colonial. Um, and I, I think there, we can, I I think we're, we are, as was named, like kind of at a a turning point, hopefully at this point, this like maximum crisis point, as you said, where things are going to shift and it might take a couple generations as, as shifts do, but I think that there can be a really powerful rebalancing and like healing in the arts when we rebalance leadership in artistic spaces with more people of the global majority, AKA people of color and mm-hmm. more women leaders, more queer leaders, more disabled leaders. And just, I don't know, I think a lot sometimes about like, what, what does the patriarchy rob us of and what, what can we gain from kind of having being tapped into the divine femininity of leadership and kind of matriarchal leadership, regardless of gender.
2: Yeah, I, I'm. there's so much in there that I just resonate so deeply with me. Um, the, I mean, being of service is such a huge part of um, how I approach the work. I'm constantly in the room going like, how do we serve the play? Like how do yes. we serve this story and how do we serve the community that the story is about? Um, I think in that's the community watching it too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it really reframes things for everyone in the room when they think of being of service to something as opposed to like personally benefiting from it. I mean, that's going to happen. If you're truly of service, that generosity is going to come right back to you. Um, that's the like hidden gem of all of this, but you have to truly, Give over to it and be willing to listen and be willing to be um, flexible and open and and not be afraid of right being right all the time. I mean, I think like mm-hmm. the most powerful three words you can use in a rehearsal room when you have the power is, I don't know. And usually I follow that up with, but we're going to figure it out together. Because, yes. <laughs> like, my approach, and I think a lot, and I don't think I'm unique in this, I think there's a lot more of us coming up and through, and I think you two fall into this, because I know your practice well enough, is, like, is this idea of, like, there's so much um, expertise in the room, so instead of being, like, here's my vision, here's what we're doing, I want to actually open it up and be like, well, what production are we making? Like, yeah. here's our script. I have this specific group of people at this specific time in this specific city. Um, what do we want to say with this production? I want space in there so that they become the experts in their own roles on the production. And they, and like we all influence each other because yeah, I've got something cool in my head, but it's never going to be as great as what's potentially in one another if we like step back and really listen um and give that space for folks to really show up and and take ownership of the work cuz i find like when when you give people um when you share power when you like lead from behind as my friend Jessica Hanna another direct, great director was saying yes Jessica you know like so much comes up and the creativity flows um when you do that you come up with stuff that's way more interesting Um, yeah, so that like all of that, because like you said, if you don't have the trust of your team, like they're not going to share their wild ideas with you. And so you have to gain that trust and, and show that, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna listen and you're going to act and you're still gonna, you know, help steer the ship as you said, but, but we are building that ship to take on those seas as opposed to just one person, you know being yeah, the, the be all end all authority on something because we can't we just can't actually be the authority on anything well i mean
1: if you're talking about shifting the dynamic into a new direction as we head back to working in live space certainly theater is not dead because hello we have productions going on one of which is uh a production that, that um our our friend and my colleague Carly just rapped on mm-hmm. and you know I'm working in television and film and you know the 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 entertainment industry has not stopped but when we talk about going back into theater spaces together in the rehearsal room um We have to think about sharing that power and sharing the opportunity to be creative and be in creative spaces with a more equal balance of power. Um, I would like to also throw into this conversation uh, the fact that the global majority has started to kind of recognize itself and recognize that there are allies across the board when we're talking about all of the protected classes, I think we're ready to stand up now in a very formal way in the theater industry and say that we are no longer going to accept this tyrannical behavior from people um, who tend to be from a supremacist and colonized ideology. Um, And I think it's really important for us to include, um, our brothers and sisters with disabilities into that conversation, because like you said, often people are hiding their disability or they have, there is shame around disability. And, you know, my dream is to, you know, train, uh, individuals with disabilities to be intimacy coordinators. It is my biggest, uh, intimacy directors. Um, It is my biggest wish. I just visualize what it would mean to have a blind intimacy director on a piece. What would it mean to have someone uh, with a different and and radicalized mobility being an intimacy coordinator?
2: Um, I I am so here for that. I love it. Yes, please. And
0: And it's such a like. It is the way to. To authentically portray like the nuance of a sex scene or a physical love story between disabled folks, you right. know like that's that is the key to that is to is to train and and bring in and and build that community of of intimacy folks,
1: yeah, I love it, I love the whole idea um so I would love to talk with you um about this idea of ableism and this idea of your show blood sugar. Can you tell us, talk to talk us through the development of your piece?
2: Oh yeah. So, um, I direct a lot of, um, solo performance. Um, and I, I direct a lot of solo performance, um, by remarkable BIPOC, uh, artists um Christina Wong Joshua Silverstein um lots of folks and they just blew my mind um with what with how powerful what the impact can be when you speak from like your lived experience um and that combined with the fact that I read a CDC statistic that said one in ten people has diabetes. In the U.S. today, and that could wow. be as many as one in three.
1: Wow! By
2: 2050, and I was like, "No, like I don't wish this disease upon anyone." Mm. And I have a form that um, came uh, because, like, there's a lot of disputes and things like that. But, but the form that I have, basically, my pancreas stopped working um, pretty abruptly. <laughs> And 90% of cases are actually manageable, haltable, reversible um, if you catch it in time because the way that theirs manifests is through um, like lifestyle choices. Right. Um, it has a lot to do with what we eat and creating insulin resistance in the body. And so if 90% of cases can't, like something can be done, I was like, I, I want to like, raise my hand and be like, Hey, I have this horrible thing that this, this version that affects 90% of people, you eventually become just like me, where you become insulin dependent. Um, and, and kind of like raise awareness for the fact that like, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be one in three. It doesn't even have to be one Mm. in 10 right now. And this disease is not, I don't want to paint this as easy. This disease is not easy to live with. but." A plant-based diet um, goes a long way in terms of reducing your insulin resistance or or it it ups your ability to be insulin sensitive. And that is kind of the key, even with my own condition to controlling my blood sugar and living a healthier um, life for a much longer time. So I knew this information and I wanted to put it out there because my doctors weren't talking about it. And um, sometimes people lecture about it, but that's a really hard way to get information. But I realized that, you know, inspired by these other solo performers, I was like, oh, if I tell my own story, I can then also embed all the things I actually want to say. Like my story became the vehicle um, for the science and the history and um, the existential crisis that comes along with having diabetes um, because you're you're walking on this tightrope. Um, because like I say in the show, you know, it's no longer a death sentence, um, but it remains a life sentence and without insulin, I am, um, going to die, uh, within months to a year, very painfully. And with too much insulin, I can die within hours. So you're kind of constantly on this, um, knife set and, that's really theatrical <laughs> like that is very dramatic <laughs> you know and so so i threw it all into a play because i was actually really interested in telling you about how you really are physically what you eat and um how sugar doesn't cause diabetes but fat uh saturated fat can and does cause uh prediabetes and type 2 diabetes um and all the ways that um like our relationship to animal agriculture um causes um Causes diabetes. It's now proven that um, John's disease in cattle can cause type one, and it's proven that excessive meat and dairy in your diet causes um, insulin resistance, and that causes pre-diabetes and type two diabetes. So this is a real conversation we have, but people are afraid of it. Um, people are very nervous because you know food is culture and um, and lots of things. But a play can crack open your heart and start a dialogue. Um, and kind of break people open to, to really wrestling with things. So that's how this all, that's how this happened. Um, and through that process, I really, because I came into contact with people with my disease for the first time in my life, um, in the process of building it, I started to really recognize my place and that this is a disability and that, um, I should embrace that and move from a place of power, um, because of owning that part of myself and identifying in this way and recognizing how wonderful and diverse and uh, like I said before innovative um, the disabled community is, um, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's that's amazing, so
1: fascinating.
2: Yeah, it is, and
1: you know. The idea that you, as a director of solo performance, and then created your own content for for solo performance, Um, I really want you to tell us a little bit about, you know, you've told us about the content. Now, tell us about the vehicle. How did you bring this play to life? Mm -hmm. Like, what technology did you use in order to bring it to life in a time of COVID?
2: Okay, so... We started working on the project in 2017. So I was able to create the stage version between 2017 and 2019. Okay, and which I, I had was, the
0: pleasure of seeing. It yeah. Was amazing. It was, <laughs> it was
2: in a theater. And oh. um and it was so great because it also included like live feed video and my husband was on stage with me. Um he's also a director. He directs music videos and, and speaking about um positive directing role models, like he's he is um shout him out. What's yeah, David Fidy is... is an incredible, incredible director and part of what like attracted us was like we were like, wait, you hold space so that people can thrive? Oh my gosh, I do too. So, it was just <laughs> nice to be on somebody else's set that was so um positive and uh and and rigorous, but still like came from such a healthy place because I think often we we sometimes say like, oh, male directors are like this and female directors are like this and that's not the case it's really up to the individual um but Mm -hmm. that that feminine energy that you're talking about um carly is very important that kind of openness flexibility um oh yeah of it all people Um, of any
0: gender can can embody and tap into that
2: for sure for sure and um and so i found that i put him on stage to do the triggering of the sound cues and the video cues because dramaturgically speaking he helps keep me alive. You know, he's right. part of the team. And so by having him on stage, literally holding the show in his hands, I could then make that um, statement artistically and, and have him share a couple things during the show. So we had this thing and then COVID happened and I realized we were at higher risk being um, diabetic. It means that you're three to four more times um, more likely of a severe illness due to COVID or or death um, a good majority of, uh, the folks who have died have this as an underlying condition. Um, and Ooh. so it became almost more important to tell my story in a time of COVID. And so I teamed up with my video designer and we just, we found a platform called VMix and, um, set up, you know, the two laptops I have in my house and, uh, the two phones that Laban and I both own and Laban, uh, Jason H. Thompson um, in his studio in downtown, he's at PXT Studio, um, just got to work and basically created a live film um, with lots of cuts and, and took the video design and the sound design from the stage production and put it through the ringer and created this online version that in some ways is almost more intimate. Speaking of like consent and intimacy, like I use my bedroom. You see my husband and I, um, on, on the bed talking about, um, you know, living with diabetes and what it means for him as well as myself. And I open up this whole house, um, to do this show. So I run from room to room, from the front of the house to the back of the house. And it's a blast.
1: That's amazing. And, and so important to have a partner, um, on your journey. So, you know, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of your guy and uh I think it's really important to think about the intimacy of of working in theater and of um telling our stories and to have the person in, a person in the room that kind of can cut through the power dynamic in situations where there is a cast and a director uh is really vital. Um Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Oh um, yeah,
0: I was just saying that makes me think about um consent around disability and also around disclosing disability. Yeah. And it's like it's we topic. never we never want, you know, anybody in our spaces uh, especially if we are uh, have power in space if we are in leadership aka in service to everybody in the story in the space we don't want to ever have that pressure and like disability is something that you know nobody needs to disclose and it's it, it, just mm-hmm. like anything like different folks have different levels of safety at which they are able to disclose things or they're not and so it's like I'm very curious in uh, a few different things, how we make a space where um folks don't have to disclose, but we can still advocate and make spaces inviting and safe for disabled folks, regardless of disclosure and um yeah, and also th- this just all this was making me think of uh this this beautiful sentence in this poem, sorry, this sounds kind of randomly tangential, but. Duh, uh, I, I promise it's and related. And gentle. Um, it is, is, uh, actually, Diana, you were at my, uh, virtual Seder. So you heard this. There is a, uh, this, this person, Dory Midnight. Um, I think they're like a queer Jewish witch, plant magic person, brilliant writer. And I use, uh, some of her writing in, in my, uh, Haggadah that I do, but she, she wrote this this piece called Wash Your Hands at the beginning of COVID. Um, and there's a line in it where she says, It's our it is already time that temporarily non-disabled people think about people living with chronic illness and disabled folks. And it just really struck me like rather than, you know, claiming an identity as an able-bodied person, we are all just temporarily non-disabled. Yes. You know, like everybody's body moves towards you know like death and and entropy and as we grow and age and evolve those of us who are you know lucky enough to become elders and go on that journey things change with our bodies so yeah. i just thought that was such a powerful framework to uh i don't know to kind of like switch the lens of like oh i am just temporarily you know non-disabled
2: and um mm-hmm. yeah so, so so i Yeah. So glad you're bringing that up because I think the language around disability is um, crucial. It's, you know, like language is one of those things that we can use to either uplift communities or oppress them. Mm. And it's one of the reasons why I have no problem saying I'm a disabled artist, because I think I need to like start reclaiming what that, what people assume that is and looks like and, and recognize that it's, one in five people in this country is disabled. And some of those people are born with a disability and some of those people like myself acquire one. Um, and the acquiring process can be a, a myriad of things and often it has to do with um, like medical and health related uh, challenges. And, it, but it's really remarkable because the, so, I love this idea of, you know, you're either disabled or you're non-disabled as opposed to um, able-bodied or differently abled or all these other um, terms that, you know, even within my community, we're still like wrestling with how we want to talk about ourselves. And if we want to talk about ourselves, um, there's a great uh, disabled actress who um, her name is Diana Elizabeth Jordan. And she is an incredible consultant. If you want a disability consultant, she is remarkable. Um, cannot uh, recommend her highly enough. And it just so happens we both have the same first name. Um, so she, um, you know, we've had these conversations because she was born with her disability, and I acquired mine. And I can pass, right? Like I can choose whether to disclose mm, health, mm-hmm. in a rehearsal hall um, what that means. And so some of the things that I do. Knowing that I don't want people to feel like they have to disclose if they don't want to um you know when we do our introductions around the room and we're asking for pronouns and we're asking for um you know name and the role in the production uh Claudia Alec, another disability advocate yes. and activist and um all around amazing human being um also shares like uh you know let us know if you have any um Accommodations. Uh, if you need any accommodations, and by doing that and just making it part of the like Diana, she, her, hers, like blah 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 blah. And you know, if you see me eating during rehearsal, it's just to save my life, no problem. Um, by by modeling that and being open about it, I find like other people will share either publicly or they'll come up. And I also share. You know, you can share them here. Or you can share them privately with myself or the stage manager. Um, You know, I think that it's really important that uh, folks have options
1: for how they want
2: to um, share the information and with whom they want to share the information. Because for the first decade, when I was acting up a storm, I hid my um, diabetes. And that can be uh, tricky, you know, because if something, nothing went wrong, um, you know, I was very I wasn't even lucky, nothing went wrong, but should something have happened, I usually selected one person in the cast that I felt I could trust. And I would tell them so that they knew if anything happened, what to do. Um, and that was how I operated for 10 years. But now I, now I tell my, now I openly tell my teams because it's such a huge part of who I am, um, and how I work and I want them to feel comfortable if they choose to disclose that's so,
0: that's so powerful and important. And that's such a simple, practical way of bringing this, you know, inclusivity into spaces. I've, I've also heard like accommodations named like access needs, like please mm-hmm. share if you have any access needs. Um, especially like I've, I've heard that through Zooms too, mm. um, you know, so that folks can just be like, oh, like I'm really light sensitive. So if you see me like off camera, like that's, I'm not, you know, dismissing you. That's just how I need to be engaged. And I love that. It's just like, that's just part of our like check-in and getting yes. to know each other is hearing what everybody's needs are. And I think that's super connected to you know, uh, the intimacy process, which of course, as we've talked about many times is not just about like staging sex scenes. It's about like, what is everybody's needs and boundaries to do their best work. Um, and I also really love what you said, Diana, about like giving people options. Like, I think it's really important in creating a culture of consent to give multiple options for how to engage, including with disclosure. So it's like, you can disclose and name your access needs to the whole group. If that is Something that feels like safe and comfortable and empowering for you, or you know, just naming as as leadership, as as being of service, you can just come up and tell me or the stage manager if you have any specific access needs that you uh, don't want to disclose to the whole group. Um, Definitely,
2: I think there's also an ability. So so that's reactive, right? Like, which is good. We need we need that. But there's also um, just to drop it in here. we, we can also be proactive. So, for instance, a lot of folks have um, like their vision is not 2020. And so I have, you know, actors that I love who like, you know, they will retype that script to make it 24 point font so they can, um, uh, you know, be it, it's easier for them to read when they're working in rehearsal. And so, how do we like embed into before the first read? asking if anybody needs the script mm. printed instead of putting it on that person like how do we um offer a couple things that just make it part of the culture of our rehearsal rooms and of our process um I, because that's one that I think you know a, there's a lot of folks with glasses who, who could benefit from it st- instead of 11 point font being in you know 18.
1: Hello right here right. <laughs> my eyes are terrible. Right, and those print fonts were all because it would be cheaper to print the script, right? So that there are less pages. But when we actually pick it up and get it into a rehearsal process, this that does not serve the the working actor. That those tiny fonts they they don't serve. No, across the board, and I, I think that like
0: oh my gosh, I'm such a nerd, but I'm like, I love a worksheet. (laughs) (laughs) But like, I'm, I'm super into this idea of like, you know, as a director, like before the first rehearsal, kind of emailing a work, a worksheet, and um, I'm kind of working on something like this for a a, a cast. I'm doing intimacy for uh, a virtual cast uh, tonight. But um, You know, sharing with the cast and saying like, what are your needs and boundaries around X, Y, and Z? You know, what are your access needs? Is there anything else that you want us to know to help keep you safe through this process? Um, and what you need to do your best work and like being able to give every person a chance to name that. And then also saying like, who will see that form? Because that's a kind of like consent. Like this form will, you know, your answers will be seen by the director, the stage manager, the intimacy director and the choreographer or you know or whatever it is or for that fight director. or the yeah. fighter exactly so like the people who need to know that or will pass on specific information to relevant designers or scene partners but just like having it be part of the process like i am making a channel of collecting all the information and giving folks a non-pressured non-public chance to name what their boundaries are what their concerns are and like what they need to do their best work and to be safe and be kept alive throughout the
1: process. And in some cases, Mm -hmm. I think that's great. And also, you know, there's this idea about 10 out of 12s and, Mm. you know, the structure around kind of these grueling hours of work and, you Mm. know, the 15 minute break. Why can't we expand that to three 20 minute breaks or, you know, just to give people an opportunity who need to nourish themselves or who need extra time going to the restroom. You know, it may take a person with, with, uh, who is disabled, um, 20, you know, 15 minutes to actually get to the restroom, do what they need to do, get out of the restroom and back. And by the time they're getting back in the room, everybody else is kind of fired up. Well, that doesn't, really serve the purposes of that person who isn't dawdling around, they're actually going to the restroom.
2: I think that's why you have to really take into account that your team is made up of individuals and and see each person for who they are and what they individually need and create a process around that that supports everybody. So I work with um, a writer and a performer named Michael Shutt. And he, uh, in 2015 survived three strokes. Um, and that left him at the time, partially paralyzed and partially blind. And as we like to say, partial to chocolate pudding. Um, (laughs) and, and, um, and it's been amazing working with him because here we are too, you know, now he, he, um, he walks with a cane now. So other than that, he he's invisibly disabled like myself but we're making theater together. And I, to tell his story, he's a 10 out of 12 is just not possible. He has, right. um, he has a, a, a brain injury. And we realized through the dramaturgy process of working on his script, that like he's got two great hours. He's got a third hour that's like, you're still making progress. After three hours, diminishing returns. And that's mm. not a problem. That's just the way he works. And so I want his best time. So when we came to do the, uh, we did a workshop with full tech, right? With full lights and sound and everything else. And so when we came to that process, what I did was I made a day that was six hours. It was three hours in the morning for myself and the designers in the space, a solid lunch so that all of us could like very much nourish ourselves. And then he joined us for three hours in the evening. Um, and we would put him into what we built because there was no reason to have someone who um certain lights and stuff could trigger certain um reactions in his bodies to like sit there and wait on stage as the lighting uh designer, you know, and the lighting programmer program the board. Um, so we used time really effectively and we didn't need 10 out of 12 we got that stuff done i think faster than we had we would have if we were all working and pushing ourselves through and so it not only i think the most important point i'd like to make is that it not only benefited michael it benefited the show and it benefited every other member of my team who also got to take care of themselves and work at a realistic pace and for a realistic amount of time so by By recognizing his needs, I think all of us, all of us love that process Um, and would do it again. That's so
0: beautiful. And it just makes me think like what in every situation we just need to like recognize and hold space for people's humanity, like moving away from inhumane work hours and expectations and circumstances and moving away from you know scarcity and letting kind of capitalism control, like we have to like get this done and this many hours and we don't have time to take a break and it's just like we can't we can't work like that anymore that is inhumane to the people that we're working at and and I think it's just so powerful to see each individual as a human with different needs, meet them where they are, move at the speed of trust and at the speed of um you know getting needs met and and keeping people safe like we we can do that we don't we don't need to work with the uh, the what's his fuck guys that we talked about earlier um (laughs) i don't don't even (laughs) like there are so many talented and caring passionate people we don't need to work with like the assholes who disregard people's humanity even more. And I think if more and more artists, and I think we are at a point when people are realizing and saying that, I think that is going to be a big part of, of the shift of our industry. Mm -hmm. Though. I also think it's going to happen in education, the way that we train new theater artists and actors to be like, you get to have boundaries. You don't have to work with somebody who treats you inhumanely, you know, I I think that's where we're going to really heal. And and I
2: love working with college students. And um sharing Same. my practice with them because oftentimes they're like, wait, what? Like you want my opinion? You want to um to to hear all the thoughts in my head and we can try things. I mean, you know, Carly, you and I before the pandemic got to work on a wonderful production of um Macbeth at Pomona College the I brought you in to do intimacy uh direction. And that was such a gift. Um, and since it was a teaching opportunity, you know. I'm, I'm so grateful that you not only worked with, um, you know, my, my Macbeth and my Lady Macbeth, but that we actually like gave a whole, you gave a whole lesson and, uh, took, took up some of our rehearsal time to teach everyone the basics of intimacy direction and what's possible, um, through consent. Um, and that, you know, I I think those students are going to help seed a better theater industry, a better theater community because of that work. So thank you for. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me in and for being a director who advocates
0: for intimacy people to come into the room, especially working with students, like each actor and each student, regardless of where they are in their, their life's journey, who can like get some of these messages and tools will like ripple out into like a giant spiral of, of shifting and
2: yeah. That's great that
1: you said that I wanted to bring into the space the idea that the energy that we put into making spaces accessible and making theater processes accessible also moves out into the wider community into the audience. Hmm. So I just I just wanted to talk a little bit about or or get Diana's um view on accessibility for the audience. You know, Carly and I talk a lot about content warnings and making sure that the audience is on the right page or on the same page with us and what they're going to uh, witness and what they're going to be participants in as the audience. And I'm wondering uh, in the world of accessibility, um, what how you feel us being more open to embracing people's disabilities on stage how can we make that move out into the wider audience?
2: Oh that's such a great great point um, I think there's lots of ways and I definitely recommend for like your unique like if you're a theater uh, artistic director out there like find a consultant and work through your specific theaters um, opportunities and challenges um, but I think, recognizing that universal accessibility is uh, is where we need to go and so and and realizing that these things are additive um and should be thought about from the beginning of your process because uh just uh, it's interesting because I think we we focus so much on the story, which is necessary as we're rehearsing, but I think the user experience is just as important to keep checking in on and mm. recognizing that that user experience is going to be diverse um, will then enable diverse audiences to actually come to your space. So, you know, allowing for uh, or, or creating opportunities for performances that are interpreted, uh, through American sign language, um, providing, uh, hearing, uh, amplification devices. I mean, some theaters can, and some theaters can't afford it, but I, I just wonder what would happen if you approached your, um, city council and said, Hey, we need $2,000 to make our, our theater more accessible. I think they might just give you that funds, uh, those funds if you make the case for it. Um, I think there's an opportunity, too, when you're at the point of um, purchase to ask if there are any other access needs um, so that you know who's coming that night and can prepare for them and welcome them. I think that's the biggest thing. And this works for um, the disabled community, but I just feel like it's a, be- a good policy for everybody is you want to feel welcome to a space. Yes. You want to feel invited in. So doing the kind of outreach and sharing image descriptions on your website and showing that, you know, here are the ASL interpreted performances or all of them might be ASL interpreted. as Well, uh, that is totally a possibility. Um, like by, by being very explicit about what you're already providing or what you can provide um, to folks if they just uh, say, yes, I have that access need. And I would like to come on next Thursday. I think creating that that space of it's you're part of the stigma and part of the shame comes from feeling like you're a burden. This is me speaking as someone who acquired a disability, feeling mm. like like you're um, you're you're going to be putting someone else out by saying I need this, but that's not true. So make us feel like it's it's not a problem because it's very simple and um, and. Mm. I think the more that we encounter each other in the audience, like the more we'll take that forward into like other everyday interactions as well. Yeah. It makes me think of like,
0: or, or just ask myself what like brilliance and creativity and, uh, community are we robbing ourselves of yes when we don't include disabled artists when we don't right. include disabled audience members in our
1: communities yes. like we no. are
0: all losing by by not including them
1: right disabled people on boards of theaters like yes hello yes.
2: and recognize that like we're probably some of us are probably already there, there's so much more work to do you, there like, right. we, we, we there there's a lot of people missing but some of us are already there we just don't feel welcome and safe enough yeah. to like come out about it or right. to share our lived experience um so fully um so the more yeah the more welcome and the more that it's just yeah you're just another member of of this of this community that so We're really... committed
1: at Intimacy Coordinators of Color. We are absolutely committed to inclusivity. Mm-hmm. So Diana, if there's anything that I can do or that my team can do to work toward the things that we're talking about today, I have put it in, well, word, that are uh, speaking. <laughs> I put it out into the universe uh, that I am more than willing to talk about that. I um, am so grateful to you.
2: Oh, yes. Thank you, Anne. I, and and it, I don't know all the answers either. So I feel like it, it needs to, we need more dialogue like this, more, yes, more yeah. conversation where we can be open and share and, and reflect on it and, and come up with some, you know, best practices because it's, it's still emerging.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And that, and that, you know, no group is a monolith and like mm-hmm. everybody has different needs. So we need like a diversity of minds and experiences and ideas to, yeah. to find the answers. Cause there, as you said, there's not one answer and maybe we'll have more questions than answers for a while. It's, you know, part of the process. But, um, this, it's all of this is making me think about uh, a huge gift that you've given with blood sugar and, this idea of stigma that you've named a lot of times and in one of my other hats that I wear uh is i I do like mental health advocacy mostly for college students, and we talk so much about stigma and how stigma and how it feels like it feels so isolating and it can feel like shame and you're like dehumanized and you're belittled or you're not heard and seen like it can feel really invisible and just like the way that we battle stigma is. By normalizing the conversation, by talking about it out loud, you know, again, folks who are feel safe and empowered to do so. But I mean, that's what you've done so beautifully with blood sugar by modeling this vulnerability and humanity and sharing your own story. You are pushing back against the stigma and you are just, you know, speaking, speaking your truth, sharing your experience and also saying, I am still an artist. I have created this, you know, that, that is a part of my creative process now. And I think that is, I think that's a really beautiful balm against the, the stigma.
2: Yeah. I I thank you so much for saying that. I think one of the most surprising things about this, like, you know, part of blood sugar was me like raging against this thing, this, this monolith that is diabetes that isn't really a monolith, right? Um, like you said, nothing truly is, but, uh, I found myself thinking I was making this play to, to share with folks who didn't have diabetes or who had a form of diabetes that they, they still had time to do something about, but through the process of doing it, I met so many other folks like me who have such similar stories and like, always after performing it, it's like, oh, you're telling my story. Like, and that means the world to me. And that was actually really healing for me as much as I was trying to put something out there that could do good and be of service and heal other folks. What was incredible about this work was it was simultaneously, um, stitching up so much of the, so many of the wounds that I had and so much of the isolation I felt living with this disease. And so I think that's where. Theater and storytelling of all all forms is just crucial, um, and why we need to be able to have stories told, for, by, and with, you know, different communities. Um, there there's nothing more powerful than coming together to hear someone say, "I, you know, can I tell you something and share something so mm-hmm. so personal." It's always going to resonate. Like I tell, I tell so many of my um, solo performers, like the the most universal is always the most personal. So don't write Mm. your, your, your silly, the the detail that you think is silly and unnecessary about yourself. Like that's the one that's going to spark for someone else feeling like they can relate and feeling less alone in this world.
1: A fucking man. Oh my God. I love that so much. Diana, is there anything else that you want our listeners to know? Oh, wow.
2: Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> that's such an uh, an amazing open question, Anne. Um, I'm like flummoxed by it. Um, no, uh, I think because of COVID, it's, um, I would like to say like, experiment. Don't be afraid to fail. Even once we're back in theaters, you know, take the same amount of care that we found that we needed to take with each other and with stories and with technology here um, and take that into the theater. Because I think um, the limitation of not being able to be physically together led to the, the version of blood sugar that I think I was always meant to make, which is a virtual mm. version that can be shared with people all over the world mm. um, simultaneously and facilitate a real um, conversation. And that wouldn't have happened without the like constraints that came with sheltering in place and needing to stay safe. Again, it came from this place to circle back to the beginning of like of wanting to keep myself and my team safe and led to one of the biggest discoveries um, I think of definitely of the project, but perhaps of my career.
1: Well, you certainly um... Nailed that question
2: (laughs) (laughs) after after a pause. (laughs) And thank thank you. you. (laughs) Oh, thank you both so much. It's such an honor to be here talking with you both. I admire and respect and care about you all so much.
0: Gosh, it's such a pleasure to to talk to you today. And to we're so happy that our our listeners get to hear your uh, brilliance and your experience. and, And
2: yeah.
1: Yeah, your whole point of view. Um, we appreciate you. Um, so Carly, uh, what are we gonna do? We have this whole <laughs> new segment uh for our reader. Uh David, we're probably gonna need like some kind of special fanfare or something here. Yeah, sound effects um, for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um I, I think we ought to to uh introduce it. So what is it called, Carly? Shout out corner. Shout out
0: corner. <laughs> so basically, especially when we have guests on and we're we're trying to do a lot of guests this season, we want to just end with a shout out corner where everyone can have a little space to share. Is there something you're working on that you want to shout out and amplify and put into the world for folks to check out? So um, would love to start with Diana if you want to shout out. Um
2: anything. Sure. Um, I brought it up so many times during the <laughs> interview that I should definitely shout out. Um, so blood sugar is this uh is is available virtually. Um it's yes. available on demand. I hope to perform it live again, either virtually or um in a theater. You know, that's gonna come. But for now, you can access the recording for free. Um, via my website. So that's d i a n a w y e n n. dot com, And uh, you will find the show there. And I hope you'll share it with other folks um, because we all know someone. We all know someone in this diabetic community. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the thing I'd love to shout out. I Good. can't wait hear what you two are going to shout out.
0: <laughs> Carly, what are you shouting out? Oh my gosh. Um, I would love to shout out um, I had the pleasure of doing intimacy with the road theater company, uh, recently, and they did this amazing, they found a way to safely make theater in the time of COVID. Um, and they, they're filmed, they're filmed and they're streaming. And so you can buy a ticket from home. The the first show, this bitter earth by Harrison, David Rivers, I think it might be done by the time that this uh airs but there might be an extension uh and the second one is Reykjavik by Steve Yaki and they're both these beautiful brilliant plays amazing casts um and it's just so cool to see the innovation and creativity of how can we still make theater and bring it to folks safely so you can go to uh the road theater company's website check it out and um you can watch on your couch um that I highly recommend, like, quote unquote, go to the theater at home with somebody. Like, uh, my partner Zach and I watched it because they stream it at specific times at eight o'clock on the same night that my parents watched one of the shows in their living room. So we all kind of got to see the show at the same time and could like text each other things. So shout out to the streamed shows at the road.
1: Wonderful. And uh, for ICOC, we have a couple of things coming up. May 2nd, we are going to have what we call Zooming In. And Zooming in is going to be a discussion around intimacy beyond the binary. So we have a team, a beautiful, lovely team of gender non-conforming, trans and non-binary actors, directors, activists, teachers. Um, they're going to be talking together kind of in a roundtable format about how the intimacy industry can... Um, invite, include, and welcome, uh, members of these, uh, gendered communities. So that's coming up on May 2nd. And then Amazing. also, yeah, right. And then, um, uh, on May 16th, we will have our second, uh, session of the certificate qualifications for intimacy captain work. So much like you would have a fight captain, you would have a dance captain, uh, we have created a curriculum around becoming an intimacy captain. And that information is going to be on our website, intimacycoordinatorsofcolor.com. And you can get tickets to that. That is on May 16th. And we hope to see you there. It's a whole lot of fun. It's an uplifting space. We come to the, the work with enthusiasm and everybody gets a pretty certificate. So we hope <laughs> that you come and um, join us on that journey. Amazing.
0: That's fantastic. Well, thank you again so much Diana for taking the time to talk to us. It's always such a pleasure to connect with you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for giving us this gift of this podcast.
2: Oh, uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm so happy that this manifested and I look forward to continuing to hear all the other guests that you have up next. I know you guys know great folks, so I'm yeah. just very proud to be to be among them. So Thank you both for doing this. Because this, speaking of being of service, this is an incredible service that you are providing to our community. We've like intimacy direction and choreography is crucial. And I'm so glad that you're pushing it out through podcast. Thank you. Carly, anything else? I think that's it. Thanks folks for, for listening
0: and tuning in again. And uh, yeah. Just happy to be in community with y'all.
1: <laughs> yeah. See
2: Always. you next time. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: If you, yes, you listening right now, have any questions about intimacy choreography, direction, consulting, or just the intimacy field in general, please send them to our email, which is the letters I C I C dot Anne and Carly at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at the letters ICIC underscore Ann and Carly, where we will be posting info about upcoming episodes and other intimacy-related tidbits.
1: And as usual, we'd also like to pop, pop, pop our sound designer, editor, and otherwise extraordinary person, David Gonzalez and pop, pop, pop to our wonderful producer Hazel Lozano music by David Gonzalez the podcast logo is by Zach Brown pop, pop